Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogsad. Guys, how you doing today? Good. We're doing well. Good, uh, good to be with you. All right. Likewise. On today's podcast, do early creeds help establish the credibility of Christianity? Ken will show what the primitive church thought about the divinity of Jesus in the next two podcasts. And Ken, this could help a lot of our listeners or listeners who may have uh, students in their family on a college campus. You're not going to get the message uh, that uh, you're going to present on these two podcasts, right? Well, unfortunately, that's correct. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the question, uh, what did the earliest Christians believe about the person and nature of Jesus Christ? And of course, um, many people are not aware that uh, we actually have some new insight about what the apostles believed. So I think these shows are going to be very helpful and, and uh, hopefully will equip people to engage uh, this topic. Wonderful. All right, Ken, well, take it away. And you're going to take us back pretty early uh, in church history, right? I am. Uh, you know, there, there were creeds before the New Testament existed. Um, the, the primitive uh, creed, probably the earliest Christian creed, was just in English three words, Jesus is Lord. And uh, that goes back, you know, to primitive Christianity. By primitive, I mean uh, not early church history, but primitive would mean when the church was only Jewish. It was made up mm -hmm. of only Jewish people. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, claim that Jesus is Lord, this creed uh, that Jesus is Lord. And um, I, again, want to underscore the point that there are creeds in Scripture uh, if you go to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures, back to what the Jews call the Tanakh, um, maybe the most often cited passage in the Old Testament is called the Shema, uh, which means hear, something you do with your ear. Uh, of course, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, that was an early creed, and that creed existed before the uh, Hebrew scriptures were recorded or written down. Uh, and, and a similar uh, idea is true in terms of the New Testament. The early church was a worshiping church. It was a confessional church. Uh, think of Romans, confess uh, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. Well, the early church was a worshiping church. They had creeds. They, they sang or chanted hymns. And what we have discovered is that it appears, uh, and uh, many scholars accept this, that there are statements in the New Testament, particularly in Paul and Peter's writings, uh, two individuals that are right at the heart of historic Christianity, uh, the pillars, uh, if you will, the, the central apostles, that Paul and Peter weaved into their writings certain creedal statements or confessional statements uh, or even hymns that were sang and uh, 
recited long before the New Testament uh, came uh, into existence. So this, I think, is a, a very important idea. And so I'm going to take us in that direction. Now, um, you know, when we think about the ancient Christians, they came to believe that Jesus was the God-man, and uh, the Greek would have been the theanthropos. Uh, theos is the Greek word for God. Anthropos, where we get our English word anthropology. Anthropos would have been man. So the early Christians uh, referenced Jesus as, as the God-man. And I like to point out that right at the heart of historic Christianity is the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, how many of you have had Jehovah's Witnesses knock at your door? Um, they come to my door pretty frequently, and I've talked with them uh, over a period of about 40 years. Now, sometimes they come at very inconvenient times, and I'm not able to talk with them. But uh, what's clear, if you've ever read any of the uh, Watchtower literature, uh, their magazine Awake, you recognize that they have a very different Jesus. They have a Jesus who is a creature. So if you think of the creator-creature distinction that's so important in Christian theology, that, that God created all things, uh, the tri only the triune God existed, and he called all other contingent realities into existence, well, the creator would be uh, above, the creation below. Well, with Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is a creature. Uh, he's kind of like uh, Michael the Archangel, if you will. And so what we see is that there has been long debate about the identity of Jesus Christ. And I, I want to say just a couple things about the way Christian orthodoxy uh, defines uh, the person of Christ. And, and I'm going to put this in a little philosophical way. We might think of the Trinity, for example, as being one what and three who's. Uh, what I mean by that is whatness refers to essence or nature, and whoness refers to personhood. Well, with the Trinity, you have one what, that is, there's only one God, one essence or one nature, but there's three who's. So the Christian view of God is that uh, God is personal and more. But if we compare that then to the incarnation, now the word incarnation is not in the New Testament because it's a Latin term, um, but the idea of sarx agenita, this is a reference to John chapter one, and the word became flesh, uh, sarx, sarcasm uh, means you're, you're cutting the flesh, uh, metaphorically speaking. Well, with the incarnation, you have two what's and one who. Uh, Jesus had a divine and human nature, so he had a union of those two natures, so he was two what's, but in terms of his personhood, he was one who. And so uh, Christian theology uh, in light of uh, scripture teaches that Jesus Christ was a single person with both the divine and human nature. Now, the question I want to ask all of us is this, how important is the incarnation? Well, that's why I talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. That's why I talk with uh, liberal and progressive scholars. That's why I interact with people. 
because I think the essence of Christianity rests right here. Um, historic Christianity is found in such doctrines as the Trinity, uh, the incarnation, his atonement, his resurrection. You know, here we're talking about mere Christianity. We're talking about the essence of Christianity. So the incarnation is derived from scripture, uh, that the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, uh, took to himself a human nature and became man. And uh, we draw this right from scripture. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Uh, that Greek term with, prosopon, you could translate it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was face to face with God and intimacy. And then that third clause, and the word was God. Uh, and then in verse 14, the word became flesh. So the incarnation, um, we see it in, in uh, a couple other places that I'm going to talk a little bit later, Philippians 2, Colossians 2, uh, 1 John 4. So the incarnation is very, very important. And I I really like what C.S. Lewis says in his little book, Mere Christianity. He says, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Actually, he is kind of rewording a little bit uh, the statement by Athanasius. Um, Athanasius uh, was a great defender of the doctrine of the incarnation. In fact, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I always ask them, uh, do you know about Athanasius and do you know about Arius of Alexandria? And I tell them, you'd like Arius, but you wouldn't like Athanasius because <laughs> they come to fundamentally different ideas. Now, let's move forward with this. Why is all this important? Well, uh, for example, our view of the person of Christ uh, makes Christianity distinct from the other two monotheistic religions, um, Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and I, the way I'd like to illustrate that is to say this, that the respective prophets of Judaism and Islam, uh, Moses, the central prophet of Judaism, Muhammad, the central prophet of Islam, they present to people a revelation from God. The way I like to present that is that Moses uh, and, and Muhammad, they both say, look, I am not God. Um, I have a revelation from God. I have been sent by God. And they say that this revelation that they have, whether it is the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, or whether it is the Quran, uh, that these are revelations from God. I'm not God. They point the finger back to God. Now, again, what I think is powerful here is that Jesus makes all the difference. Now, of course, I would want to underscore that I believe the revelation given by Moses was indeed the authentic word of God, whereas the revelation from Muhammad I reject as a revelation from God. But here is a, where Jesus differs. Jesus Christ is a revelation of God, not 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 just pointing to a revelation, the Hebrew scriptures, but Jesus is a revelation of God in himself. And so this high view of, of Christology, this view that Jesus is a single person with both the divine and human nature, it distinguishes our faith 
from Judaism and from Islam. And of course, from all of those heretical uh, new religious movements, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, uh, and various other religious groups uh, of our time. Uh, what is interesting, of course, is that heresies never go away. They kind of take different forms and, and return. Now, let me pause there, Joe and Dave. I, I want to present this challenge uh, to the person and nature of Christ, but I, I don't want to leave the topic of the incarnation unless you think we've, we've defined it clearly and carefully. Uh, yeah, I actually I have a question. Um, you spoke of. Let me make sure I get this right. Now you spoke of the the divine nature is the what, in which then there are three who's three persons. Yes, and you know the science in me, the scientist in me, then begins to look for analogies. And uh, you spoke of the human nature that Christ, of course, took upon himself, the human nature that you and I share. And in a sense, you could say that's a what? Yes. In which there are then multiple persons that, that are, you know, having that nature. Now, we would not say that our... Uh, our existence in this divine nature as persons that we're in the same relationship with one another that God, the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit are with one another. I think you would say that. Uh, but there is this concept of that when a male and a female get married, they become one in some sense. Yeah. Is there... Do you have any kind of thoughts on that, or is there anything to that? Yes, um, and, and again, I bring us back to, I, I find it helpful philosophically. Um, you know, when we, when we ask questions of metaphysics or ontology, we're asking, what is that? What, what is its being? What is its nature? Uh, so we talk about uh, God being one what, if he's more than one what, then we have polytheism. Uh, so God is only one what, and, and certainly the Bible is quite clear that there's only one God. Christians would agree with our, with our Jewish friends that there is only one what or one God. Where we differ, however, is when we move to that who is God, what relates to the essence or nature, who is you know, what is the personality? Uh, how do we define that? And of course, with the Trinity, we discover that there's diversity of persons within the Trinity. And uh, that conveys the idea that, that when it comes to the, the, the personal nature of God, um, there is diversity. So one what and three who's. Now, of course, when we come back to the incarnation, uh, it's, it's two what's. Jesus has a divine what, a divine essence or nature, mm -hmm. and he has a human nature, so that's a human what, but he remains a single person. Uh, Nestorianism, one of the heresies in church history, said Jesus was two people. Uh, would he have two heads talking back to each other? No, orthodoxy says 
that the uniqueness of the incarnation is Christ remains a single person, but he has both a divine nature, a divine what, and a human what. And of course, uh, in previous programs, we have talked about that um, if you go back to the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that particular one is not a, a mathematical oneness in the sense of being exclusively one. Uh, the Hebrew term does allow for diversity. Uh, and you've hit the analogy. Uh, the same word is used in that the two can become one flesh. Now, again, how does God pull this off? Well, this is the challenge of believing that God is, is beyond uh, his creation. But the incarnation is so central to Christianity because Jesus is both God and man. As, as God and man, he can reconcile God and man. Uh, you know, because of Jesus's ontology, his being, um, he can do what he did on the cross. And again, that incarnation, just like the Trinity distinguishes Christianity from the other uh, Middle Eastern religions, so the incarnation. And that really is where uh, Jews and Muslims take uh, issue with Christians. Uh, you know, not only do you believe in this trinity, which they think borders on polytheism, um, but of course we, we think it's quite consistent with the Shema, but it's also the issue of Jesus. You, you Christians differ from Jews and Muslims in believing that Jesus is a single person and has two natures, a divine nature, a divine what, and a human what. Does that help you a little bit, Dave? Yes, definitely. Okay. I want to now present uh, what I think is a very serious challenge, and it's been around for a long time. Um, maybe the way I can set it up is simply to say this, that, you know, in the last 300 years or so, what we have seen in, in Christian theological centers is the emergence of what we might call a theological or progressive liberalism. Um, and what I mean by that, I don't mean it politically, um, uh, not political conservative uh, uh, issue, but theologically. Uh, you know, for example, if you go back uh, 300 years or so, all of the Ivy League schools here in America, Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, um, these were, these were Christian colleges. These were Christian universities. Uh, and they believed in the Apostles' Creed. They believed in the Nicene Creed. Uh, they were established uh, to the glory of, of the triune God, of Jesus Christ. But of course, uh, over that period, there has been the development of critical scholarship and by critical biblical scholarship, I mean that people have moved away from the idea uh, that you can just take for granted everything scripture says is true. Uh, so the idea of biblical inerrancy was seriously challenged. And uh, people began to say, look, we, we live in the modern world. Uh, miracles are uh, something that don't, don't seem to fit with our modern kind of context. And so uh, we have seen the development of theological 
or progressive liberal theology. And um, what we have discovered, of course, is that these people don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, Harvard, I think, was the first of the, the great Ivy League schools to, to accept Unitarianism, rejecting the Trinity, and then later, of course, rejecting the divinity of Christ. And this is something we're used to. Uh, I find it interesting that almost always the movement of Christian organizations or Christian universities or Christian theological traditions or denominations they move from a very conservative point of view theologically to a more progressive or even liberal point of view. Now, there, there are exceptions to that, uh, but that is often the case. And uh, of course, uh, the challenge, the liberal skeptical challenge that I'm going to talk about here is that theological, liberal, and skeptical scholars often insist that the Jesus of history uh, never viewed himself as being both God and man. Uh, rather, the divine human Christ of faith, as it's called, was a much later doctrinal innovation. So the idea here is that uh, if you set aside this very conservative view of inerrancy and this very conservative view of uh, infallibility of Scripture, um, what we discover is that uh, the earliest Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. And this idea of his deity uh, went through a very long period of, of evolution. And maybe the, the place to point to of that, uh, the, the birth of Jesus being God was in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, where they said that Jesus is both God and man. Uh, now, let me give you a couple sources for this. Um, one of the very important thinkers in the area of philosophy of religion is a philosopher who taught many years, uh, really just kind of down the freeway from us at Reasons to Believe. Uh, it's John Hick. And Professor Hick was a, was a very in, interesting individual, British. He uh, at the time of World War II was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which was very conservative, orthodox. But uh, Hick uh, changed some of his views. He moved to America, uh, taught here uh, in America uh, for a long period of time. Um, I think he was at Princeton for a while and then became professor at uh, Claremont uh, School of Theology. Well, Hick moved away from Trinitarianism. He rejected the deity of Jesus, and uh, he became one of the leading scholars of religious pluralism, uh, that maybe all the religions are true because there's kind of an underlying type of issue. Now, Hick's thesis is that the doctrine of the incarnation, or God in human flesh, was the product of a long evolutionary process culminating at the Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon in AD 451. Now, I don't think I have to underscore the point, but, but if this is the case, if Hick is right, then I think this is a potential defeater uh, for Christianity. The idea that the incarnation did not find its root in the claims of Christ and in the early apostolic church 
but instead was a later doctrinal innovation, serves as a what I would call a possible defeater for historic Christianity. I mean, if Jesus was just a man and he was not God, well, um, what does that mean for us? Uh, what does that mean in terms of his ability to redeem us? Uh, and of course, what did he think of himself? Uh, and why did he go around making these uh, specific claims? So that is that contemporary challenge. And, and let me read to you just a little bit longer quote, and then we can take a few minutes and kind of unpackage this. Uh, let me introduce you to another individual who is a leading New Testament scholar today. His name is Bart Ehrman, spelled E-H-R-M-A-N. Bart Ehrman has this in common with John Hick. Bart Ehrman was at one time a very conservative evangelical Christian. I think he even went to Moody Bible Institute, which is pretty conservative, right? Believing in biblical inerrancy. Well, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, for various reasons, uh, left historic Christianity. I'm told, I haven't asked him personally, but I was told that he had a crisis uh, concerning the problem of evil, and uh, he rejected his earlier views about biblical inerrancy, uh, and he became, he has become a skeptic. Uh, I don't know, he may be an agnostic, but here's what he said. He says, that the early Christians did not consider Jesus God is not a controversial point among scholars, apart from fundamentalists and very conservative evangelical scholars. Uh, conservative evangelicals, scholars are unified in thinking that the view that Jesus was God was a later development within Christian circles. He says fundamentalists disagree, of course, because for them, Jesus is really God, and since he is God, he must have known he is God, and he must have told his followers, and so they knew from the beginning that he was God. This view is rooted in the inerrancy of Scripture, where everything that Jesus is said to have said, for example, in the Gospel of John, is historically accurate and beyond question. And then he closes with this statement. He says, but that is not the view of critical scholarship. Whether or not Jesus really was God, a theological, not a historical question, the earliest followers did not think so. Mm. And again, this is Bart Ehrman from his book, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument, uh, the historical argument for Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, interestingly, though, um, Bart Ehrman is now a skeptic or an agnostic and rejects biblical inerrancy. He doesn't accept the, the even more radical perspective that Jesus never existed. He rejects uh, kind of that mythical uh, perspective. So here is that challenge. Um, and it I, sounds, I think it sounds like he doesn't consider conservatives as being real scholars, since he can make a statement that all true scholars, critical scholars, I mean, is that, is he well, that he says, arrogant? Apart, apart from fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, there, are, there, are, there are scholars within that evangelical community that we would acknowledge as scholars. And it sounds like he's dismissing them and saying they're not real scholars. 
Well, I, I don't know if you would say it just in those words, but I think it's very clear that, uh, I mean, uh, let's look at N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Would he be a fundamentalist? Um, he's a world-class New Testament scholar. Um, I'm going to mention some scholars here in America in just a couple minutes that are uh, very capable scholars. I think his point there is, if you're not a, a fundamentalist or a very conservative evangelical, you may not be aware that uh, most of the critical scholars don't believe in the supernatural. Yeah, don't most of the unbelieving them. scholars are unbelievers. I mean, it's, a, it's an oxymoron. Well, I... I think he's I think he's pointing out that either you fall into one camp or you fall into the other. Yeah. And this is interesting. And I'd like to do later shows on this question. I was listening to Mere Christianity driving to work. And um, Lewis makes the point uh, at one point in the book, he says he thinks most people kind of drift away from Christianity. It's not that they are reasoned out of it, but that they just kind of drift away. I think that's a very interesting question. Why do people deconvert? Is it because somebody came to them and gave them different arguments? Well, I think to some extent, maybe Bart Ehrman and John Hick would say that was the case with them, that maybe they interacted with these theological ideas and came to the conclusion, uh, no, these are not good arguments. Of course, I would raise the question, is it possible they drifted away and then maybe began looking at arguments that would be consistent? But that's a question for another, for another time. Do you see the, um, the, cri the critical point here that if Jesus is not God, what does that do to historic Christianity? If Jesus is not God, well, the Trinity is not true. If Jesus is not God, then he is not both God and man. If he's not both God and man, then uh, can he in any way reconcile God and man? So I think that this is a fundamental challenge. Now, what's, what's I think very powerful is, uh, I think there's a refutation of this. Uh, it's a refutation both to liberal or progressive scholarship and to, and to skeptics overall. Uh, and so here I want to begin looking a little bit at what, uh, what we can say uh, about the identity of Jesus. But let me pause, question, comment, before we do a little bit of that. I would just comment that Ehrman's quote leaves us hanging, uh, and you're going you're gonna to help us, because he ends with, the earliest followers did not think so uh, with regard to whether Jesus was God. So yeah. Um, uh, that that kind of leaves us hanging, and you're going to address that. So that's good. that's where I want to pick it up. I'm I'm leaving you hanging there for. Uh, he's leaving us hanging, and now I'm going to fill in the blank. There are these creeds uh, that were in existence long before Scripture. That is, biblical scholarship through through form criticism, and form criticism is part of critical scholarship. Biblical scholarship, through its use of form criticism, has discovered primitive Jewish-Christian creeds, confessions, and hymns that were weaved into Scripture. Now, does everybody accept this? No. But 
lot of people do affirm it. And so these creeds, confessions, or hymns were utilized by the early Christians in their worship services long before the New Testament was actually written. Now, let me lay this out a little bit. Um, you know, uh, if we if we think of uh, if we think of kind of a historical context, uh, Christians were meeting together and worshiping the Lord, and they were reciting creeds and singing hymns or chanting hymns uh, long before the New Testament was actually written down and collected together. And uh, what what scholars have have discovered here is that in Peter and Paul's writings in particular, in the New Testament, there appear to be creeds, hymns, confessions that, that are weaved into uh, the biblical context. Now, uh, and, and for example, to say Jesus is Lord to, is to say that Jesus is God. The, the Greek word kurios for Lord was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Yahweh. So to say Jesus is Lord is to say that uh, Caesar is not. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is Yahweh. He's the extension of Yahweh. And what's interesting is this high Christology of Jesus as God, unlike the thought of Hick and Ehrman, uh, that thought of a high Christology emerges very quickly within Christianity, not just very quickly, but immediately. And here is here I want to introduce you to a couple other scholars. Uh, the theologian Ralph P. Martin, he is uh, a Catholic scholar. Uh, he says this, the church of the New Testament is already a believing, preaching, and confessing community of men and women. This implies the existence and influence of a body of authoritative doctrine, which was given and shared possession of those who formed the nascent Christian communities in the world of the Roman Empire. Now, he's, he is just telling us that, you know, Christians uh, worshipped God and recited creeds and sang hymns long before uh, the New Testament. And uh, what we have discovered is that there are these creeds and, and confessions. Uh, for example, uh, what we see in the New Testament here is that Paul and Peter, uh, while their writings come quite a bit later, I mean, it, I mean, think of this uh, particular idea. If Jesus is born somewhere around, 4 to 2 BC, he wasn't born AD 1, Anno Domini 1. He was born just before that, so maybe 4 to 2 BC. And if Jesus dies, if he is crucified and dies in 30 AD, now there are some Christians who would say 33, but let's, let's take 30 AD. Well, if Jesus dies in 30 AD, then his resurrection happens three days later, which would have been 30 AD. Uh, if, and if Paul's conversion comes maybe a year or two later, AD 31, 32, and if Paul's letters and Peter's letters are somewhere between 47 to 62, 
uh, 47, maybe the book of Galatians, maybe the earliest of Paul's epistles was written that, at that point. Uh, by 62, we don't get any more writings from Paul and Peter, likely because they died in the Neronian persecution at that point. But, but if we then look to the Gospels and say, well, maybe the Gospels come to us as late as 70 to 80 AD, I don't agree with that. I think you can make a good case that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic, because they see things together, they have lots of commonality. Uh, if those appeared in 70 to 80, again, I think you could make a case for the 50s, but let's let's adopt the, the, the later dates. And then, of course, uh, progressive scholars would push the Gospel of John back to 80 or 90, so the New Testament isn't completed in terms of a time frame from a progressive standpoint until 90 to 100 AD. Now, now here's my point. Jesus died in 30 AD, and the New Testament isn't complete until 90 uh, to 100, then you've got 60 to 70 years later. That seems like a long time. And couldn't myth or legend have crept in? Well, here's the point of these creeds and confessions and hymns. They actually take you back to about 30 or 31 AD. That is, these hymns or creeds, and I'll read a little bit from them in just a minute here. These creeds and hymns take you back to the primitive church. They take you back right about the period of Jesus's death and resurrection. Uh, and they may have been in existence even prior to Paul's conversion. So if that's the case, uh, then we have a high Christology immediately. And let me read a little bit about uh, some of these. Here is a New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg. Uh, I've interacted with Dr. Blomberg. He teaches at Denver Seminary. He says the, the oldest of all are passages by Paul and Peter in their letters that scholars have identified as most likely predating the epistles in which they appear. Well, um, it, you know, you look at the Philippian epistle, it has a hymn in chapter two, but, uh, you know, the book of Philippians, when was it written? Maybe, maybe in the 50s, but the hymn that comes out of it uh, appeared much earlier in terms of an oral presentation. Now, now, the question that people will often ask is, how do we objectively know which sections of Scripture were actually used as oral creeds, confessions, and hymns in the ancient church services? And here's what Blomberg says. He says there are numerous texts of highly poetic, think lyrical, if you will, filled with tight tightly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine in styles that often differ from those uh, of the epistle writers themselves, and which seem to be set apart as self-contained entities within the letters in which they appear, prove likely candidates for the early Christian creeds or confessions of faith. Now, here's what struck people. So you're reading through Philippians, or you're reading through Colossians, or you're reading through 1 Peter, 
And all of a sudden you bump into a, almost a different kind of writing. Uh, you bump into uh, poetic, lyrical writing and the style of it is, is almost like the style of a song or a poem. Uh, and it's very different than Paul's regular or Peter's regular writing. And so scholars have come to the conclusion that uh, maybe the clearest, and here's Blomberg again, he says the clearest and most commonly cited examples are Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Well, um, this is a, this is a very powerful uh, statement because if you go to Philippians 2, and Joe and Dave, you're very familiar with this. This is what is often now called the hymn of Christ. Uh, when you look at it in particular, uh, it says that though Jesus was in the form of God, uh, he didn't he didn't feel like he had to hold on to it, but he emptied himself. Well, the expression there is that he was in the form of God. The word form in Greek is morphe. He was in the essence of God. If you go to uh, Colossians 1.19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God in flesh. Uh, you know, the book of Philippians again says that Jesus came down became a bond servant, became a slave on our behalf. And then uh, 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22, Peter says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Our point here is this. It looks like, and lots of scholars accept it, that actually what Peter and Paul did is they took oral statements, either hymns or creeds or confessions, that were recited in primitive Christianity, and they weaved it into their writings. It's possible that Christians were reciting this hymn in Philippians 2 before Paul was ever converted. It is really uh, practically possible that Paul learned that and then weaved it into his writings. And that means that these high Christological statements, uh, again, though he was in the form of God, uh, he's the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell, that he is at the right hand of God, the ha having the authority of God over angels and powers in submission to him. Well, that's only true of, of God. So what we discover here is that these hymns and creeds and confessions, they have a high Christology, and I want to share just a, brief, a couple comments uh, that are made uh, by biblical scholars, and we'll come back to it again, but here's what Larry Hurtado, now Larry Hurtado, he passed away recently, a couple years ago, I think, he was an, an ancient historian a New Testament scholar. Uh, I would place Hurtado and N.T. Wright uh, on the level with any of these other critical scholars in the world. Um, Larry Hurtado, who is a, an expert on ancient Christianity, 
Uh, he says this in light of the early um, exalted language that the primitive church used. He says, I simply want to emphasize that the origins of the worship of Jesus are so early that practically any evolutionary approach is rendered invalid as a historical explanation. He also says this, again, Hurtado, and this is his book entitled, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? By the way, it's pretty readable, just as uh, Blomberg's book is readable. Here's what Hurtado says. He says, I simply, uh, uh, he, I'm sorry, let me read the, the next passage. He says, the evidence for the speed and early nature in which the primitive church worshiped Jesus as God is a more explosively quick phenomenon, a religious development that was more like a volcanic eruption. So Blomberg and uh, uh, Hurtado are quite familiar with the claims made by people like John Hick, made by Bart Ehrman, and they say that this explanation that Jesus was only a human being and then through a long process of evolution, you know, the, uh, the church was initially uh, made up of Jews, but later became predominantly uh, made up of Gentiles, that these Gentiles kind of developed, uh, and so Jesus evolved into uh, to deity. But that's not, what, uh, that's not what these creeds and confessions say. So I think it's a I think it's a powerful statement that um, uh, the reason the apostles believed that Jesus was God is for the very reason they tell us he performed the supernatural he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy um, he did the things that only God could do and uh, it it's it's interesting to me that again uh, this pushes. This pushes Christian orthodoxy right back to the very beginning of, of Christianity. You know, I, I meet evangelicals who are sometimes, um, you know, they, they are uh, non-denominational Christians. Maybe they, they don't have uh, liturgy, they, they don't have a formal worship, and sometimes they're a little put off by these kind of creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, and they say, "Well, you know, why do I have to? Why do I have to necessarily believe all of those Greek statements or those Latin statements connected to the the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the Lutheran Church? Uh, you know, I want I want to be like Jesus. I'm just a Jesus follower." Well, what I think is powerful here is what we discover is if you get back to the Jewish Christian origins, you get you're getting those high statements that only later come in Greek and Latin form. Guys, what what are your thoughts, your questions here as we've worked through some of this? I uh, I did in fact uh, some time ago read uh, Hurtado's book. Uh, on how did uh, Jesus become God, and uh, found it very persuasive. He really collected a lot of material together to uh, make this case for this early evidence of uh, Jesus as God in the primitive Christian community. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 powerful. Now, now again, um, I'll return to some of these books when we give a little bit of a uh, reading resources. But I think that this is this is very powerful, and I want to come back to it and say, yeah, there is the Jesus Seminar, there is higher critical scholarship, but remember that these critical scholars. Um, who are often agnostic, uh, they have adopted certain presuppositions. Um, you know, the supernatural for many people is very difficult to believe in. They believe science is kind of explained away, those kinds of things. But think about it for a moment. Um, the, the hymn and the creeds and the confessions that we have discovered in scripture these weren't written by Hindus who believe in many gods or believe the universe is God. Uh, these hymns were sung, chanted, recited, not by pagans who believed in many gods. They were recited and recorded by Hebrew Christians. They, they were Hebrews. They were Jews who believe in only one God. And yet they came to conclude that, that they, they should worship Jesus. Well, a Jew would not worship anybody other than God. And the reason they came to worship Jesus is they believed that he was God in human flesh. He was an extension of Yahweh. And so the most unlikely people to ever uh, exalt Jesus as being divine would have been his Jewish followers. Mm -hmm. Yet they did that exact thing. And so I think that this is a very important point. And again, I come back to the point that, yeah, there are lots of critical scholars today, but there are also some very careful Christian scholars who believe these things to be true. Uh, again, N.T. Wright, uh, Hurtado, Blomberg, there are some very fine scholars, New Testament biblical scholars, who believe every word of Scripture and believe that uh, the creeds that these great Christian churches have pronounced are, in fact, drawn from Scripture and true. Good stuff. How about a couple of resources? Can you mention some of those books already, but maybe you can repeat them for us? Yeah, and I, I, I think it's I think it's very helpful to to be able to fall back on some of this. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, I mentioned the particular book by Ralph uh, Martin. Again, he's still living. Uh, his book, New Testament um, Foundations, New Testament Foundations: A Guide. Uh, for Christian students. That book is available. I have it right here on my shelf. Uh, he is a prominent New Testament scholar. Uh, we mentioned, make. I, I don't think I mentioned Blomberg's book. This is Craig L. Blomberg. His book is entitled Making Sense of the New Testament. Now, you might think that's a difficult book to read, but it's not. It is a pretty thin book, but he develops the, the ideas there, Making Sense of the New Testament by Craig Blomberg, professor at Denver Seminary. He may be emeritus professor by now. And then uh, Larry W. Hurtado, H-U-R-T-A-D-O, 
Um, Larry Herdado passed away a couple years ago. He, by the way, was uh, Nick Tavani. If you've if you've ever uh, heard us talk about Nick Tavani, uh, Nick is a doctor who uh, uh, lives on the East Coast. We've interviewed him on our program. Uh, Nick's Sunday school teacher was Larry Hurtado. I always tell him, uh, "You're making me envious that you had such a such a fine scholar." Well, Hurtado, one of his books here is. How on earth did Jesus become a God? And, and that's readable. By the way, I write about it. I summarize Hurtado and Blomberg and uh, Martin. Uh, in, in my book, God Among Sages, I kind of bring these ideas and, and present them with as much clarity as I can. And of course, I've written a lot about the incarnation. Uh, a good place to begin is I have two chapters uh, about Jesus Christ in my book, without a doubt. Wonderful. All right. Thank you for that, Ken. Looking forward to the next podcast with uh, more of this type of uh, thinking. It sure it sure helps to know that when students, uh, I'm always thinking of people at the university, uh, because you're going to encounter uh, this type of thinking that, you know, the, the idea that Jesus was God was a later development. I think you said 451 in the uh, Council of Chalcedon. Uh, no, uh, here's uh, evidence that uh, we have creeds uh, talking about Jesus as God that even made it into the scriptures probably. So that's, that's good to know and good to know there are careful scholars to help us. So thank you for the, the uh, material you've presented here. All right, let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter, and that's at RTB underscore K samples. We'll be glad to read your comment or question here. You can also get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.